Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the farm, farm and reef report. Looking at a lot of, a lot more work. <laughs> you know, little baby chicks are much easier to manage than, than large meat birds. Rotating animals across the pasture and uh, kind of reflecting on, on animal management, on land management. Thinking a lot about erosion control and, and animal movement trying to provide the highest quality forage and pasture and also to engage in, in a, a set of land use practices that, that uh, fosters and supports beneficial growth in the land, fosters more forage growth, more soil building. So we're going we're gonna to talk a bit about animals during the course of the show, mostly portrait, poultry, but diving in a little bit of pigs, sheep and such. Um, we'll talk about vegetables you know animal mineral vegetables the old <laughs> but definitely having a lot of um, a lot of good stuff happening on the farm with some interesting new experiences I'm gonna get into uh, work workflow talking about how we as humans you know evolve working together and, and the ability to anticipate any efforts and and what that what that means to us as, as you know, as, as social creatures. Talk a bit about uh, adaptability as well. This hotter, drier time that we find ourselves in, you know, kind of the natural fluctuations along with um, trends in, in warming and climate change. So lots to, to kind of marinate and reflect on there. And then I'm also going to spend a little time talking about the process of thinking of being in the head, of getting out of the head, of focusing on now and, and less on past and future. So those are kind of the, the, the broad strokes for the show. Uh, at, at this point in, in kind of my, my work life, it's, it's rare for me to encounter a, a, a new tool that I haven't used before. So it's always, it's always a thing of note. Uh, and we, we tried out one of the uh, gas-powered T-Post pounders, rented a, rented a T-Post pounder from Willis Power today, and oh boy, you can, you can really get some stuff done with that thing, and, and so, you know, one of the things I'm going to, you know, I kind of want to dive into is this, this process of gaining skills, of gaining knowledge, of, of infrastructure tools, and then how that kind of relates to um, you know, this idea of workflow, of, of shared effort, of anticipation. And so I think today, uh, me and Lito put in, me and my brother put in, I think, 120 or 130 fence posts today, T-posts with the, with the, the pounder, the gas-powered T-post pounder. And, and it's, it's one of those times where it's, it's kind of the same thing as, like, uh, as using hydraulics, where all of a sudden you see like, whoa, you know, having a tractor and lifting compost, that kind of thing, and, and seeing like, wow, that was, that was machinery that is reducing my effort, is changing my effort. And sometimes, you know, for instance, with the T-Post Pounder, like the effort's not, it's not so much that the effort is less, but that you can go faster and the effort's more constant. And so one of the things that we're really trying to do is, is shift our, our our work, our efforts from from things that are physically difficult and can be damaging to the body 
to things that are just physically difficult. And so, for instance, that, that hammering of T-posts, the splitting of wood, you know, anything where you're, where there's like a, a, a fierce effort followed by a jarring stop is over the long term going to wear the body down. And so for us, you know, like I say, renting this, this T-post pounder and kind of getting a sense of like the actual pounding now becomes the easy part. All you got to do is hold the thing on top of the fence and I mean on top of the post and, and push the throttle. And so it's more the lifting of it and the up and down the ladder. And so part of what I wanted to talk about was, was kind of that process of workflow in which, you know, it took us a little bit, you know, we kind of went back and forth about the best way to do it. But eventually we figured that for us, what worked best was to have whoever's using the pounder, climb the ladder, carry the ladder, set the ladder up, climb the ladder. And then the other person hands up the T-post pounder and picks up the T-post and then, uh, you know, set it on top and drive it down, lift it off, hand it back to the other guy. So that one person is doing the carrying and the lifting of the thing. And one person is doing the moving of the ladder and the driving of the T-posts. And so it's, you know, it's kind of this process of, of learning to work, utilizing a new tool, having skills that you build over time through effort and being able to implement changes in the process, being able to be open to changes, to looking for different ways of doing things, different methodologies. And, and once you find a, a different thing, a new tool, a new practice, trying to trying to refine it, trying to revise it. Uh, there's a, a phenomenal book by a fellow named Ben Hartman. Um, his farm is called, I think it's a Clay Bottom Farms, and his book is called The Lean Farm. And it's just all about uh, looking in a systematic way at your, at your operation, at whatever it is that you're doing, and trying to cut out waste, trying to create more efficiency, and, and trying to reflect on the way that you do things so that at, at any you know you can save time you can cut down on effort and that's one of the one of the things i think is really important in evolving a set of practices is is that when you that, that you don't let it stagnate that you're always looking at ways to revise it and change it and that you know you accept that there's going to be false starts there's going to be mistakes along the way some of your ideas are not going to pay off or or play out and that it's important to continue trying and continue striving to do those things. And, and so that's, you know, we, like I said, we had some starts and fits with this T-Post Pounder and, and eventually we kind of hit on the rhythm. And, and once you get in the rhythm, it's like you see, the, you, you see the work happen faster, you see it happen cleaner, it's more effective, everybody's feeling better about it. And so even though the effort, the physical nature of the effort hasn't changed much, you're, you, you're accomplishing more, you're, feeling less worn down by it and and that's kind of you know that that synergy i think is very very important in 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 kind of this broader context of human effort that as we and when we work together when we learn how to work together when we know how to share effort we we create this process that's that's more than the sum of the parts and again it's you know this is specific to the example of farming but it can be a it's kind of a you know, it can be applied in a lot of different avenues. And, and this idea that when we, when we share effort and, and we work together and we anticipate each other, anticipate the needs of the other person, the needs of the process, um, that we're, we're able to accomplish so much more and that 
that sort of that flow state where you just you just boom moving through it and it becomes you know it's like it's like hitting a baseball right when you when you hit the sweet spot and you see that ball just fly it's 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 like effortless and that feeling of of synergy of of shared work is is something that that i i revel in that you know and and it's 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 relationship it's farming it's work all of these things where when we when we're paying attention to the needs of each other and and moving together in concert then we we really are able to to create something that 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 feels good that feels like thriving and and the flip side of that is like it's really easy to you know for me it's it's very easy to get to overthinking things and get stuck in my head and and actually end up slowing down because I'm not open I'm not anticipating um, and paying attention to the other parts of the process and so I've been doing a lot of reflection lately around kind of mental chatter and and kind of asking myself some some basic questions around you know um, uh, when I'm when I'm having sort of the monkey mind negative mental thinking you know kind of a wondering like sort of stepping aside and looking at it and asking myself the question like well I wonder what my next thought will be and and the the flip side of that is also this question of of uh, who would I be or how would I be without this thought and and really for me that's been kind of a nice portal to to a simple answer I would be a guy washing some dishes or I would be a guy driving the truck you know because it's it's those kind of those times when we're sort of on autopilot that, that it's really, really easy to get into that mental chatter instead of like just dropping out of it and just, you know, sometimes I'll think to myself, like, I don't have to think right now and, and really kind of dropping into that focus of, Oh, I'm, I'm right now I'm washing the dishes and all, all of that kind of for, for me adds up to something that I'm, I'm, really working towards and, and trying to process through in terms of, uh, you know, this idea that the mind is a tool and like all tools, it has an off button and like all tools, it shouldn't be used all the time. You know, we don't, uh, you know, it's the old, uh, he who has a hammer thinks the whole world is a nail. And so the more that I'm able to focus on shutting off that, the, the tool when I don't need it, also, I think creates like a, a space and an openness for for evolution of of direction of figuring out, you know, it's it's funny how like when I when I'm able to drop into that state, there's a, something will float to mind that it's like, oh, that was actually something I needed to be considering or paying attention to or thinking about. And on the one hand, it kind of defeats the purpose. But on the other hand, it also will will bring forward things that I've forgotten about or things that I need to do. And I've been working a lot on externalizing memory. So instead of, you know, trying to carry mental, you know, the, my checklist of things I'm going to do in my head, really trying to take the time and write it down. And, and it's for a few different reasons. One, because then I have it, I can check back on it, but also then I can kind of put it to rest in my head. And so once I've noted it down, then I, you know, when it pops back up in the mental chatter and I can say, you know, I've noted that down, I've made my clear next steps for what I'm going to do about that or when I'm going to do it. And uh, I don't have to worry about it. So that, that process of externalizing some of that thinking, some of that memory has been very, very helpful for me. Just using, you know, a basic phone app. I got a, I think it's a 
keep notes on my phone and I can just jot down. And so I keep, you know, running lists of uh, materials and supplies I need from town and, and job lists that we're going to do. And, uh, you know, I keep my, the water log for my water meter on there so I can refer to it and track water use. And, and because it's on the phone and I, and I have it with me, you know, in terms of like I'm walking along and I'm like, oh, I see there's a bunch of weeds there that I don't have time to get to right now. I can note that down. We've got to pull the weeds out of the broccoli. So it kind of gives me the ability to, to prioritize the tasks. And if it's, you know, if it's a task that's quick and easy that I can do right then, boom, I do it. But if I don't have the time or it's, it's going to take longer, then I can note it down and then I can come back to it through the course of my, my weekly planning process. So that when I sit down on Sunday evening to make the plan for the week to come, I can refer back to the keep notes and it's got all these little notations of things that I know need to be done now that I probably might or might not remember, you know, and so, and, and the way I used to try to do it was to take a clipboard out and walk the farm and, and make notes on the clipboard of all the things I needed to do. But so often it's like, you know, you'll stumble across something along through the course of the day and if you note it down then, you have it and if you don't, even when you do the walk with the clipboard, maybe you see it, maybe you don't. So really trying to, to be able to be more cognizant about tracking the, the to-do list and, and like I say, externalizing some of the memory of the farm and of, of my overall you know, tasks and work really, I, I think, allows for a bit more freedom. And so it's kind of that irony of, of you know, using spreadsheets and making little boxes that, that creates a structure that then allows for freedom within that structure. So I've <laughs> been uh, thinking a lot about animal rotations lately and pasturing, farming, using animals across the landscape. You know, traditionally there was, you know, you go back up say a hundred years and it was fairly um, closed loop systems, not much coming in, not that much going out, right? You're thinking small farmsteads, livestock, manure being used for fields, for crops, for pasture. and you know, you, you, you follow all the way to the far end of kind of the industrial paradigm and you separate the manure from the pasture and from the, the, the food crops. You separate the, uh, you know, manure to making compost to, to being uh, food friendly, you know, obviously not raw manure on plants. But um, th this idea that, that animals have been and, and farmscapes and foodscapes have been kind of inseparable throughout history. And then uh, you reach a point where... Uh, you know, in, in terms of this, this question of efficiency and animals and byproducts being separated and land being separated from animals and concentration of animals and all these things. And, and then you end up with all these travesties, these land use complications, you know, fertilizer flushing into rivers and streams and going down to the ocean and um, uh, erosion and lack of, of nutrients in the soil and chemical fertilizers. And so I've been thinking a lot about all these things and thinking about animal management and and how complex it can be, how complicated it can be, and uh, how difficult it can be. And sort of, you know, like I said earlier, setting a lot of springtime, you're setting a lot of cycles in motion. You're beginning the journey on a whole lot of different projects, enterprises, processes. And you reach this time of year, the days are long, the work is longer. Like no matter how much you get done in a day, uh, you could always do more things. And so really trying to strive for some balance around that and some clear planning so that when we finish the things that were part of the plan, then we're done for the day instead of you know adding 
new things to the list and and also really reflecting on the various kind of interlocking pieces and so right now we're doing have two uh two different batches of meat birds on pasture uh 15 turkeys on pasture in a separate enclosure and then laying hens also on pasture and so there's four areas of rotation um and and now recently I got enough electric netting to have different setups so that I have enough space because what was happening initially was I was having to move the netting the, the perimeter netting almost every day in order to, to encompass and keep up with the movements of the turkeys and chickens and and so now with a bit more infrastructure I got more of the electrified poultry netting um, I'm, I'm able to to have a broader space so that the the day-to-day -day maintenance is a little bit lower and then the broader you know once a week maintenance is is a little higher but it's it's nice because that i can choose to schedule whenever and and so i'm you know trying to to sort of make time and part of the planning process a, a lot of the times with the farm i tend to think of like the animal chores as the things that happen before the work happens and and that's a dangerous predicament it's a dangerous way to start the day for me because uh, if it takes longer, if I'm running late, then I'm thinking to myself, man, I, I, I got other things I should be doing. I need to be doing something else right now. And, and that's like, a, that's a terrible feeling, trying to, you know, feeling like I should be doing, I should. And so I really have been working on building into the, you know, the idea that like when I start work, it's when I start doing the animal chores, not that the animal chores are the things I do before work. And that way, as long as the animal chores take, that's how long they took. And that was part of the work day. And that's just fine. Uh, so that I'm, when I'm doing the work, I'm thinking to myself, or I, and I'm, it's, to be honest, I'm trying not to have to think and just feel that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing at the time that I'm supposed to be doing it. And, and that feeling of that sort of comfort is, is uh, profound. It's good. And so that's something I've really been trying to pay attention to and, and hold. And, and again, um, if I find myself feeling like I should be doing something else, trying to externalize that, trying to include that in the planning process, trying to identify that for later so that when the loop comes back around, I can schedule it differently so I don't have that feeling, so that I am able to operate in that sense of, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing at the time that I'm supposed to be doing it. And it's tricky, you know, especially with so many moving pieces. One of the things that I need to do a better job of is scheduling in the contingency time to just accept and expect that there's going to be things that come up every day that I didn't expect and that I should have but I, I should budget time for that so that whatever that thing is I can handle during that that time instead of creating a situation in which you know where I'm, I'm all of a sudden squished or pressed for time and I'm thinking to myself I should be so all this stuff is is part of this this practice this journey this process and and so in terms of the the chicken rotations you know one of the the, the realities of the land that um the the pasture that i've had access to for the last uh, eight or ten years <coughs> it is very very steep um and it's been interesting to see the changes over the last eight ten years like how much richer how much better the forage has become how much nicer the soil has become uh, it, because of the animal rotations, because of the movement across the landscape. And you can look at the difference between areas that I run chickens and, and poultry and such on versus the areas that I don't, and it's, it's noticeable. Um, but one of the things that I've also been reflecting on is that animals tend, um, animals tend to, to beat things down. Uh, livestock can be very, very hard on the land. 
and that the the more you are able to and willing to dedicate time and energy to managing the livestock in a, in a concentrated and intensive way, the more on point you have to be about it. Um, and, and, you know, the flip side of it is kind of the tragedy of the commons in which if you just let livestock run, they're going to eat the most nutritious things first. They're going to eat those till they're gone. Then they're going to eat the next things. And you're going to see a, over time a general degradation of the, of the land. And so this process of, you know, of concentrated animal movement, of kind of mob stalking, is, it, it is interesting because there are, it, it, it does both make richer and more abundant the land over time and also cause some bare spots and damage where, where the, you know, the concentration was too much in a specific period of time, especially with chicken tractors on slopes. Like what you're going to see a lot of the time is like all, like a lot of the, a lot of the loose stuff moved downhill and the upper part of it become bare. And so over time, though, the movement over, you know, over years, um, you start to see this change in which you, you start to see these little swales. And, and one of the things that, that I have to be very committed to in, in the process is to, using, to bringing in a lot of biomass, to adding a lot of straw to bare patches, to making sure that um, the animals have access, especially this time of year once it's gone brown, that, that we're harvesting enough green biomass from the gardens that the animals have consistent access to fresh green forage. And so, you know, that looks like the, the leftovers from, you know, 50 heads of cabbage, like creates six or eight big tubs full of, of biomass that then I can deliver to the pigs, to the chickens, the turkeys, the ducks, the rabbits, etc. So the idea being that we're always trying to, to uh, plan for clear sources of biomass that are going to be coming out of the garden. And so early spring, even even through late spring into into early summer, there's a lot of weeds, right? We're pulling all the weeds out of the beds. We're clearing the wild lettuces from the hedgerows. There's all kinds of biomass that's available. We're harvesting alfalfa. We're cutting comfrey. There's so much different lush, abundant stuff. And then as we get into, you know, we, we move into the latter part of June, things are starting to dry out. Um, we hit early July and all of a sudden there starts to be this abundance from the cannabis, the, the sweepings, you know, the, the leafings from the insides and the suckers on the insides. And all of a sudden there's this additional source of forage. And, and then as we move through into fall, you know, there's also a the, lot of comfrey still, a lot of these the alfalfa, the deep-rooted perennials that can get a little bit of access to some water here and there are going to continue to produce this forage. And so... It's kind of this process of, of bringing in compost and amendments to the garden spaces and then moving out the excess biomass, you know, and there's, there's the like high quality harvestable biomass that goes to market, that goes to CSA, that goes to, to, to various accounts. And that's, that's one aspect of the farm business, but then there's the, the waste, the leftover, the extra, the, um, the edge rows, all of the things that can be harvested, can be gleaned and provided to animals and and you know the animals will eat as much of it as they can and then they're going to stomp on tromp wood all around and that's going to end up as a a source of biomass that's going to build soil over time uh, and so it's this kind of interesting cycle of like you know this time of year as you you look you're watching the animal cycles and it's like things are brown and dry and it's 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 like well it's not that that amazing and then you get back to the green time and you see like oh Look at that. Look at the vibrancy of it. And, and that's, 
that's pretty special. So I'm, I'm really, you know, like I say, enjoying the, the having of enough of the infrastructure. I still got to build, got to build some more shade structure for Turkey. I got to build a couple things, um, to, to be at the point that, that we need to operate at this year. But overall, having the new electric netting, um, we work with, with, with different netting companies. Um, but if you, if you search for electric poultry netting, um, it's, it's pretty effective in terms of keeping predators away as well. Which, and, and for us, the biggest predator we struggle with is ravens. Um, and, and that has a whole other sort of set of management. And all these things are kind of various rabbit holes. You, know, you, you go down and talk about them for a good long time. Uh, I was going to shift gears and talk a bit about the, some of the vegetable processes and, and changes and transitions and things. Uh, moving out of the, slowly moving out of the spring crops, moving into summer crops. We are, it's funny because it's like every week, it's like halftime, just one more week, just one more week. Um, but almost, almost everything is in the ground now. All the beds are full. Uh, I've got one round of peppers still waiting in the hoop house because I got some salad mix I got to clear after I harvest it next week. And, and so specifically, I wanted to get a bit into the, the hoop houses um, and, and some of this very, very rapid rotation sets of, of, of practices. And so right now we're running uh, four uh, 14 by 50 caterpillar tunnels for, for food production. And um, there it's, it's four 30-inch beds in each one. So it's, I got four 50-foot beds in, in four tunnels, so there's 16 rows total. And in the early spring, what we did was we sowed every, every shot for every 10 days, but it basically was like every one week to two weeks, we sowed a whole tunnel. And so initially it was um, one row of salad mix, one row of like a fast-growing Tokyo Bacana kind of mustard, uh, mescaline kind of salad mix. Uh, they call it the winter salad mix. Uh, one row split between turnips and radishes and one row of either beets or carrots. And so as we, you know, you set those in motion and the, the crops have different timelines, right? So the radishes are going to come out first, the turnips second. And, and so each time that something's coming out, you're prepping, you're re-sowing, um, or transplanting in. So it, you end up with a, a very staggered set of cycles over time. It, it kind of, um, like I say, some things move faster, some things slower. And, and so as we're making these transitions into the summer crops, now it's, you know, one hoop house is um, one row of melons, two rows of cukes, and a row of peppers. Um, one of them is, is two rows of sweet peppers, one row of eggplants, one row of tomatoes. Uh, we're doing the, we do these cour de boue, these ox hearts that I got from my buddy Robbie a few years ago. And they're just phenomenal. They, you know, they're, they're called an ox heart because they're, they're shaped, shaped like a ox heart. <laughs> so it's kind of this, this heart shaped, uh, tomato that it's, they're very, they're very meaty, good for pico. Um, and they do really, really well in the hoop house. We found this out last year. We had a very solid harvest from them. Uh, definitely a lot of difference in terms of like hoop house tomatoes. You're doing a lot of pruning. You're really you're, you're trying to uh, maximize the the fruits at, and and kind of minimize some of the foliage. And it's you're going vertical with them. So we're doing a trellis. We're running them high. They'll you know they'll get up to the sort of the seven seven foot or so, and then they'll kind of come over the top. And it gets you know as you get into October, it gets pretty unruly in there. We don't, one of the things that's nice about being up on the ridgeline is that we don't see a whole lot of early frost. And so a lot of times, you know, we'll still be running tomatoes on into, um, 
Thanksgiving. So they, they you know, they have a, they'll produce for a very, very long time. Um, you'll get a lot of different flushes out of them, and they'll, you know, they'll continue over the course of the season. So and then so that's two of the hoops. The the third one is kind of similar. We do I do sweet peppers um, on my side because I'm going to pick them fairly regularly, and then I do hot peppers at Lido's. We do we do hot peppers over there, and so that one you know that hoop house has uh, right now it has two rows of peppers. Pretty soon it's going to have three rows of peppers and one row of, of the tomatoes, and then we do a lot of interplanting with basil, and so we'll, we'll we'll either sow or transplant in basil on the shoulders of the tomato rows. In between the pepper plants, uh, basil likes a little bit of shade. It, you know, if it gets totally shaded out, it won't do a whole lot. But if it just gets some shade, it, it does pretty well. And then we've also been doing a lot of like turnips or radishes on the shoulders. So like we're planting in a row of tomatoes that's going to take, um, you know, several weeks before it's to the point where it's expanding and, and kind of filling the row. And so we're running, you know, we'll, we'll transplant in the tomato plants. We'll, we'll do the bed prep so it's smooth. We'll transplant in the tomato plants and then we'll sow radishes or turnips down the shoulders. And that, that has worked out very, very well. Uh, we also did it with, with that, the, the Tokyo Bacana mix. It's, a, it's like it was kind of an accidental seed blend in which we ended up with the spicy Mizuna, which is a, a spicier mustard, and then the Tokyo Bacana, which is a very, very mild, almost lettuce-like mustard. Um, and so we, we, we kind of had an accidental blending of those seeds uh, because two paper sacks got a bit damp and, and combined in a, in a cloth bag. So even so in this, this blend that's been working out really well. So we also did that on the shoulders of the, you know, some of the tomato rows or the pepper rows. And, and so I guess one of the, you know, the, the main concepts I want to get at is that, you know, when you're dealing with, with hoop space, it's high value space. So you really want to be maximizing what you're able to pull out of it. And, and so we, we were really, really heavy on the salad mixes. Um, as we've transitioned into the summer crops, we've still been trying to, to hold space for the salad mixes along there. And then one of the things that we've chosen to do is, is dedicated the, the fourth hoop house um, entirely to summer salad. And so right now it has, it has one bed that's prior, you know, at the beginning of this week, it had three beds of salad, one bed of beets and one bed of carrots. And so we, we got the, the last cutting off the salad off of two of the salad beds and we cleared the beets. And so we prepped and re-sowed. So now I have one bed of lettuce that's, that's gonna be hopefully ready, um, not for this coming Monday, but the week after that. And then this, you know, you get into the timing of things and crop planning and trying to make sure that you have a consistent supply for markets. And, and whoa, there's a lot of moving pieces there. Um, but so this, this summer salad mix tunnel, <coughs> we're using some, some overhead irrigation um, in the form of, of a stand-up sprinkler system that's um, with the, the wobbler sprinkler heads. Father um, Bechil at, at Mulligan Garden busted that out for us. We're super appreciative of that system. Um, and so we've got overhead sprinkling, and then I've got drip irrigation too. Uh, run the drip once a day, give or take, and then run the overhead for a few minutes, uh, a few times a day to keep the, both to keep the salad mix cool and also right now because we're germinating. To, to make sure that the soil bed stays moist for the, the salad mix that we've sown. So the idea is, you know, up until now, we've never been able to do salad mixes all the way through the summer. They all, it always just gets too hot, it gets too bitter. Um, and there's a few ways to, to kind of work through that or to work with that. One of which is making sure that, that it gets enough overhead watering that it always stays cool. Because as soon as it gets dry and hot, that's when lettuce starts to get bitter. And so in the past, you know, we were doing it outside 
and it was it was essentially up to like do we have the time and energy and the the fortitude to make sure that somebody goes through with a hose multiple times every day and waters the lettuce um and and it was pretty hit or miss mostly miss so this year what we're hoping is that with the tunnel having it on drip so that the soil stays wet having some some additional overhead irrigation so that the the lettuce stays wet the, the you know the plant material itself and then the other thing that we did was we put um a layer of very thin, uh, very widely spaced shade cloth. So, you know, they have the different, uh, you know, there's like 30, 50, 70 um, percent blockage of the sun. And so like in the past, we've tried to do things with 70 and it was just way overkill. Like we tried to start, um, we tried to run some, some brassica uh, uh, starts on, you know, in four inch pots underneath it. And, and they just ended up getting the aphids really bad because they weren't getting enough sun. Um, and then it was too sheltered. So this year with the, we're using, a, I think it's a 30%. It's like a very, very lightweight shade cloth that we ordered from um, Farmer's Friend, which Farmer's Friend is the, the same company that makes the Caterpillar tunnels, which I, I, I really um, enjoy, really appreciate. So we, we got this shade cloth that we put over the top. Um, you slide the sides up because the, the way the Caterpillar tunnel works is it's a rope that goes over the top. And so there's no, you're not securing the plastic on the bottom so you can anywhere along the tunnel you can slide the sides up and increase air movement and then we got some end walls too with a with a um, zipper door so we can roll up a good portion of the end wall and have an open doorway um, and then have the sides up as well so we get a lot of air movement you got to be cautious with you know you get especially on these these breezy very dry windy afternoons um, your soil surface is going to dry out much faster your your the, the salad mixes are going to dry out much faster so you got to be you got to really be paying attention to the irrigation but we find that that thus far knock wood i mean we've been through some real heat spells and for the most part we've been able to dodge um uh bittering in the salad mix so far this year you know there's a little bit here and there but for the most part i've been um, really super stoked with how it's been going and so um that again to just kind of sort of sum up this section that idea of of really rapid rotation salad mixes quick root crops um really pushing through the the spring and you know and and i can see i haven't done it yet because two of the tunnels are new and we really weren't in production last winter but but i can see how as, as i go into fall um what possibility there could be for fall winter spring production and, and just how how potent that is one of the big issues for us this year is that like we're gonna run out of water it's not a if it's a it's a when and and then we're not gonna um be really planting fall crops probably not getting a whole lot of cover crop in the ground until the rains come so definitely uh hoping um for an early an early fall this year for you know the last couple of years have been very very late you know first first storm coming around thanksgiving um but 2017 was was a whole different story and so it, it's kind of ironic um as as a cannabis farmer to like wish and hope for for fall rains like i don't care if the coals are chunky like send me some rain in september <laughs> um, and so that you know it's interesting to just look back and see how and it's also like a, a little um uh sobering to look back and see how much it's changed you know even in the last last 10 years uh, in terms of fall rains so you know a lot to a lot to reflect on there a lot to unpack um one of the things you know that it's kind of gets into this broader topic of of adaptability which i'm gonna i'm gonna talk a little bit more about i'm gonna too many joints today uh anyway so the old saying um crisis and, and opportunity and 
that within that, you know, you experience crisis, the opportunity is, is uh, the potential for change, for adaptability. And, and that's one of the things that we're really experiencing this year on the farm. Uh, without such a hot, dry spring, without the pond being so low, I, I don't know that we would have taken such a hard look at some of our management practices. And we've made some, some pretty key shifts that, 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 are, that, that feel astounding, that, that it feels like I, I can't believe that it took us this long to do that. And, and again, kind of back to that crisis and opportunity where like people are such creatures of habit that it often takes us, you know, it takes something extraordinary to break us outside of our bubble. And, and that's been something that's, that's been a real reflection point for me in terms of, you know, thinking about my blind spots, wondering, because kind of by definition, you don't know what they are, they're your blind spots, and, and wondering what I'm missing, what changes I can make, what, what my blind spots are. <clears throat> And, and really relishing opportunities to, to, to dive into that the, in those kinds of areas. And so the, one of the most specific things I'm, I'm kind of referencing is uh, our, our shift in management around irrigation and mulching. You know, we've, we've been proponents of mulching for a long time, um, but didn't have a whole lot of, of really thinking around the, the depth, uh, you know, real clarity around the depth of mulch. And, and so one of the things that we've been, that's been kind of happening to us over the last few years, and this is much more of an in retrospect um, kind of realization, but that we've essentially been irrigating too much, leaching too much water through, and, and so losing some of the nutrients and, and that we can address this and adapt to this by, um, thickening our mulch and, and one of the thing that things that we've seen because of the excess irrigation in the past is um, that we've had trouble with nitrogen levels especially with long season crops cannabis tomatoes peppers that that and and in, because of that we've had to do more teas we've had to fertilize more um, and so really paying attention and seeing this kind of monumental shift this year with with two factors one um, thick mulch and then two altering the types of mulch and so what we did was we got uh, organic alfalfa in the spring. We got bales of organic alfalfa and, and we got uh, wheat straw. And so we've been putting the alfalfa down first as an underlayment. And what we're finding um, is that the as, as you break up the, the bales of alfalfa, you get kind of a crumbling of the alfalfa leaf that drops to the soil surface. And then you get kind of the, the hay or the stalks um, that, that form sort of a, a layer over the top, kind of like a, like a sheet and a blanket, sort of, is kind of the way I've been thinking about it. And then we've been putting the wheat straw down over the top, nice thick layer of wheat straw is the comforter. And, and so the beds are staying, it's, it's, it's kind of a bad analogy because the beds are actually staying cool and moist instead of very warm because of the blankets, but you get where I'm going with this. So um, what we found, you know, early in May, before we'd gotten the mulch down, I was running the timers 15 minutes twice a day, run, you know, running quite a bit of water. Um, and, and, and we hadn't even gotten to like the hottest spells yet, right? So we got the mulch down and, and it was kind of right at the mo right at the, at the same time that we were getting the mulch down, we were kind of having this, like this reckoning around water, around how low the pond was about how much evaporation we were seeing, um, about the fact that the, you know, the, the rains that we had hoped for in May had not arrived. And so I, I sort of, you know, I kind of hit the panic button. I mean, not the, I mean, it's kind of time to panic a little bit. And, uh, and I cut the water use unilaterally 60%. I just went around and I said, well, instead of running twice a day for 15 minutes, we're going to run once a day for 12 minutes and we'll see how things go. And, you know, obviously the, the, there were, we were in process of mulching. 
And so I kind of had the chance to observe that like things that weren't well mulched definitely did not do well. And I had to do some supplemental watering here and there. Um, you know, some things that are pretty well established, some things that are not high water use crops, you know, things that have gotten big enough that they're shading the soil a bit. We did a bit better with, but some things really struggled. Um, but the areas that we had double mulched, especially the cannabis, were phenomenal. Instead of 30 minutes, you know, 15 minutes twice a day, we're going 12 minutes once a day and really finding that the soil was saying, was staying soft and moist and dark and rich and that the, you know, that essentially the alfalfa underlayment was kind of starting to break down and seeing like full myceliation of it, just this rich fungal mat. And so, you know, I'm assuming that that's adding a bit of nitrogen, adding a bit of the, you know, alfalfa contains a growth hormone um, to the soil. And so, uh, and that the, the, the wheat straw overlayment was kind of pro providing that protection, sort of serving as the comforter, keeping the soil tucked in nice. <laughs> um, you know, I think there's definitely some drawbacks. There, there are always benefits and drawbacks to any practice. It's rare that things are just a 100% slam dunk. Uh, so I, I definitely think that the heavy mulch creates more opportunity for gophers, which, you know, we've been, we've, we've been very, very much struggling with gophers this year, seeing a lot of, and, and everybody I've talked to pretty much has been struggling with gophers. And so, you know, we're kind of trying to set more traps. And then also, you know, kind of the modus operandi has always been to try to just grow enough that there's plenty for them. And, and gophers in general, like gophers will eat cannabis, but they would rather eat beets or turnips or <laughs> other tasty food crops. So in general, my, my goal is to provide enough food source that they eat something else. Uh, there's been some rough losses this year. You know, we lost, I lost almost half a row of cabbages. I lost about a third of a row of beets. Um, so it's, it's been intense, but overall, um, definitely feeling like the, the much, much thicker mulch paradigm is, is helping dramatically. Plants look phenomenal. Uh, I'm watering a lot less. And, and so kind of sort of returning to that, that idea of adaptability, that idea of change and, and facing hotter, drier future, um, and, and being able to, to, to sort of turn that challenge into a set of, of changes that, that result in better practices, um, less wash through of, of irrigation water, less use of irrigation water, better plant health, more soil health. And, and I want to kind of tag that into this idea of, of fallowing, in which we're having a lot of, um, it, like as, as spring crops come out, now that the, you know, all of the space that's earmarked for, for summer crops is used, um, as spring crops come out, we're going to be just clearing the detritus, putting down some compost, putting down some alfalfa, a layer of cardboard, and a layer of wheat straw. And the cardboard and, and wheat straw aren't going to do anything. They're just going to kind of sit there. Uh, but they're going to protect underneath that that soil biota, and so that and I and I'll run the irrigation give or take probably once a week, um, and th so that cardboard is going to create an additional layer that's going to keep that moisture underneath very very content, and so those beds are essentially just going to sit in stasis until the rains come, and as soon as they do, I can either use a knife and cut through the cardboard and plant for bigger transplants or for um, places where I want to direct sow, I can drag the cardboard and the straw off and use that for path mulch. Um, and then I've got a nice stale seed bed. The alfalfa underneath will almost certainly have broken down completely. Um, the compost and, and, you know, and one of the things that I've been seeing is like a real increase 
with this technique in, in worms, in, in fungi, in, in mycelia. Um, so really being able to, to foster soil life during the dry period of the summer rather than just shutting the water off and letting the beds go dry and letting the soil go dry and, and start to lose um, some of that, that teeming biota, that life within the soil. So that's, that's something that I'm, I'm very, very excited about. You know, I, I would rather not be fallowing. You know, it's like this, this year, it kind of feels like we, we really hit our stride in terms of production. Um, and then all of a sudden we're gonna back off and, and, and kind of shut down um, a lot of the beds as, as spring crops come out because we just aren't gonna, you know, without a, a very drastic difference in the, the precipitation levels, we're just not gonna have enough water. Um, but to feel like in fallowing these beds, um, even with minimal water, that we're gonna be able to foster something that will, that will carry us once we get back to the rainy season, that feels really, really good. So, and again, it's that kind of, that idea of crisis and opportunity, that idea of adaptation um, that, that is so important. And, and it has always been important, but uh, I think now uh, more than ever. As always, it is a joy to have the opportunity to share this time with you. Much love. Thank you for listening. Great success. Great success. The Farm and Reefer Report is archived with help from Mika Ferretta, technical support provided by Sean Johnson at C3 Innovates, and music is performed by Joe Vandermeer. Archived episodes can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Music. Much love, y'all.